You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Mental Health and Stigma. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links can be found at lueepodcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Lauren Bailey, and with me tonight, I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Jem Newman. Hi. I came up with this topic, so now Ashlyn and Jem have graciously allowed me to host the show. I'm not sure which of us is more terrified. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not scared at all, so definitely you. Awesome! (laughs) But first, we have some feedback from our last episode. Jem? Yeah, so uh, we actually got a a tweet a few days ago from Reasonable Vegan that said, Great episode, Winnipeg Skeptics, on uh, animal intelligence, but why so little discussion of animal rights? Basically, the answer is we didn't have time. We had a lot to cover on a single episode about intelligence in the animal kingdom. Speaking for myself, I don't eat animals. Three quarters of our panel tonight is vegetarian or vegan. And if you want to know why I don't eat animals, Animals, you can go back and listen to episode 82, What Have You Changed Your Mind About? Of course, intelligence isn't the only factor in deciding rights. You know, we don't rank the edibility of our fellow humans based on their intelligence. <laughs> Maybe you should, don't. though. <laughs> I base it on cuteness and delicious marbling. <laughs> My guess is that a lot of the pushback against animal rights is a result of historical precedent. You know, people don't like change. For a long time, we've seen humans as an in-group and non-humans as the out-group. And our definition of human has often been woefully narrow as well. But I I imagine that if you're interested in these issues, the, the Reasonable Vegan website might be a good place to start. The group promotes skeptical inquiry in vegan spaces. And here's a snippet from their About Us section. Reasonable Vegan is committed to critically and skeptically examining how humans interact with and treat non-human animals, focusing on science, philosophy, and efficacy. This is an open source, non-profit, self-funded initiative. We receive no funding from anyone, and we could be wrong about everything. (laughs) So that sounds pretty great to me. So check out uh, Reasonable Vegan at rvgn.org. Thanks for the feedback. Thanks for the feedback. That's really interesting, because I've never heard of them, and I've been a vegan since 1994. Yeah, there's somebody I'm gonna check out. Thanks very much. So for this show, We're talking about a topic that's near and dear to me, and that has finally been in the news in a positive way. Mental health. I'm pretty sure that as a society, we are past the collective point where talking about mental health conjures up pictures of people thinking they're Napoleon or chasing after butterflies. (laughs) That was, uh, I think, the 1980s and 90s? Every every depiction on TV? Earlier than that, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much the idea of somebody with a mental illness. It was Napoleon. We're past that, but we're not yet at the point where it's normalized part of society. There's still a lot of stigma and misinformation about the, out there about mental health, mental illness, and the treatments for both. So one in four adults will have some sort of mental health issue in their lifetime, and one in 13 children. And children are grossly not represented in a lot of the mental health in, information that comes out there. because So depression, parents are just kind of left without, without any resources? And- there are some resources, but you do have to search for them. And it's it presents a lot differently than a depression or an anxiety disorder in an adult. 
Hmm. You might see schools saying, well, they have ADD or ADHD or something, and it really it's a form of clinical depression. Would it be more likely to, for, to get glossed over and say, ah, it's just a phase because kids are always growing and that it's just a phase, it's just a phase. Yep, and we're going to have information in our show notes about treatments available both for Canadian-American people on the Internet, and we can uh, go from there. So to look at where we are now, we want to start by looking at where we started. Mental health treatments, both useful and not so useful, have been around for as long as society has. And Jem is going to tell us some of that history. I'd say arguably, perhaps even longer than society has been around. <laughs> uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start in prehistory, so buckle in everybody. <laughs> oh boy. So perhaps the oldest known treatment for mental illness is called trepanation or trepaning. Which is a surgical procedure in which a hole is drilled or scraped into the human skull, exposing the dura matter of the brain. The earliest evidence for trepanation comes from the Neolithic period, predating any written record. So the reasoning behind the practice of trepaning isn't certain and was probably varied. We can't be sure that it was always about mental illness, but the evidence does suggest that that was the case, at least in, in some instances. So uh, we know from fossil evidence that the procedure was performed on living subjects, many of whom survived. Cave paintings suggest that trepanation was thought to allow malevolent spirits to escape, and it may have been used to treat mental or neurological disorders, including epilepsy or migraines. The practice continued in antiquity and throughout the Middle Ages, and there are pseudoscientific proponents of self-trepanation even today. Yeah, I read some of those websites. I saw, I saw it on an episode of The X-Files, I think, and I'm like, no way, that's holy shit. <laughs> yeah, I, remember, I remember I first heard about it on Ripley's Believe It or Not, I think, on that TV show that they had for a while. And there was a video of some woman that did it to herself in the 70s or something, and just... <sighs> I was covered pretty extensively in some of my anthropology classes as well, just because it's such an interesting way that we can look back and and see some of the culture of these uh, of these cultures that we don't know much about. Yeah, especially because yeah. for some of these Neolithic cultures, we don't have much in the way of tools, we don't have much in the way of cultural artifacts, but we do have their bones and their skulls. We can tell got really bad headaches. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, and there are legitimate medical uses for this procedure, but uh, mm. curing mental illness is not one of them. <laughs> no, we're trepidatious about these. <laughs> <laughs> so moving to China in slightly more recent times, traditional Chinese medicine treats mental disorders, like everything else, with a mixture of herbs and acupuncture. The ancient Chinese medical text, The Emperor's Inner Canon, which dates from the 2nd century CE, describes symptoms of and treatments for mental illness and emphasizes connections between the body and the emotional state. As with the theory of the humors, which I'll discuss shortly, emphasis is placed on balance, in this case between yin and yang, the interconnected dark and bright forces of the world, with an imbalance resulting in ailments both physical and psychological. The ancient Egyptians and Greeks believed that many mental disorders were particular to women, concluding that these symptoms must arise as a result of problems with the female reproductive organs. I will quote here from a paper called Psychiatry in Ancient Egypt, published in the Bulletin of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Quote, the ancient Egyptians recognized the emotional disorder that the Greeks called hysteria. They believed that the symptoms were caused by malposition of the uterus and therefore fumigated the vagina, hoping to restore the wandering vagrant uterus to its natural position. <laughs> 
So uh, most mental disorders were treated in Egypt with what we would now call sympathetic magic treatments that are based on imitation or correspondence. For example, hysterical blindness, that is to say blindness that was attributed to psychiatric rather than physical causes, what we now call a conversion disorder, was treated with the ritual of transfer. It was done, again quoting uh, from psychiatry in ancient Egypt, quote, by placing the vitreous humor of a hog's eye in the ear of the patient and pronouncing twice a certain spell, supposed to exchange the blind eye for the healthy eye of an animal. So you take the gel from the inside of an animal's eyeball, squirt it in the patient's ear, and then oh, cast some spells. No, that's so <laughs> gross. So animal rights. <laughs> <laughs> Did not exist. <laughs> Headaches were also often attributed to psychological factors and were treated thus, quote, The aching side of the head was rubbed with the head of a fish to transfer the pain from the head of the sick to the head of the fish. <laughs> that one, like, I can get how they would, how that one can kind of make sense. I can see the logic in that one. And it's less gross than the gel from the eye of an animal <laughs> in my ear. Yeah. No pig effluent was harmed. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's a type of transference, although not the sort of transference you usually think of when it comes to psychological discussions. That was a dumb joke. Okay, so uh, uh, in Europe, India, and the Middle East, many types of mental disorders in antiquity were thought to indicate interference from supernatural entities, spirits, demons, sorcerers, and the like. Mental illness was treated, if you can call it that, with prayer, church attendance, and occasionally, well, throughout the Middle Ages and into the modern period, People with mental disorders found themselves the victims of witch hunts. In this case, the treatment for mental illness was typically death, which listeners might be surprised to learn isn't actually a very good treatment. While supernatural explanations were popular, more naturalistic explanations came to be preferred in certain academic circles, and the theory of humorism came to dominate psychiatric and indeed most medical care in the ancient world. The origins of the humor theory is uncertain. It may have been developed in Egypt or Mesopotamia, but the four humors were first systematized in ancient Greece, and the theory rapidly spread throughout Europe. Its chief popularizer was Claudius Galenus, or Galen of Pergamon. The word humor actually comes from the Greek kaimos, which means juice or sap. No, you're not going to groan and say you for that one? <laughs> no. Okay. Well, we've covered that before. I think so. Uh, yeah. I thought that was pretty gross. So at its core, humorous theory holds that the key to physical and mental health involves balancing four basic substances. Can anyone remember what they are? Black bile, yellow bile, blood, phlegm. 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 Yeah, I was going to say mucus. Yeah. yeah, so we have blood, phlegm, yellow bile, which today would simply be called bile or gall, and black bile which does not seem to correlate to any actual bodily fluid, although it was thought to come from the spleen at the time. Oh, that tricky spleen. Yeah. The spleen was apparently way more important back then. Yeah. <laughs> and some more modern physiologists have argued that it's possible that these, uh, the four vitreous humors were actually somebody maybe separated some blood and found that as it dried, it could separate into layers where yeah. the phlegm and the bile might actually represent, uh, you know, d different parts of the blood. Cream rises to the top. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that that's uncertain. It's true. 
true after a very fatty meal. Yeah. <laughs> Humorists believe, I, I love that, uh, humorists, humorists, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they uh, believe that imbalances in the humors, you know, too much phlegm, not enough black bile, that sort of thing, were responsible for mental disorders. In addition, some held that a person's core temperament was dominated by one of the humors. Now, we're going to play a quick game, if I may. Uh, I'm going to describe a temperament and you're going to tell me what humor you think it best represents. If you're right, you're going to get a point. So points I'm just, count for nothing? Points count for nothing. Awesome. Okay, I'm going to go around the circle here. So this person is angry, restless, but also ambitious. What uh, what humor do you think that represents? Black bile. Black bile? Well, I was going to pick that one, but I'll go uh, phlegm. Grossest humor. What? Well, everybody is wrong. <laughs> That's actually, uh, th- bile, that person would be choleric. Or bilious. They yes, are, uh, yes. bilious. Yellow bile is the, the humor that would be associated with anger, restlessness, and ambition. Bilious is a description you don't hear much these days. I okay. love that so word. bilious. I love that word. <laughs> so, uh, we're going to start with Ashlyn this time. Our patient Ashlyn is brave, hopeful, and carefree. Huh. Blood. Oh, uh, yeah. Now I'm thinking blood for that one. Sure. Let's make it a trifecta of blood. Everybody gets a point because that person is indeed sanguine. (laughs) And finally, starting with Laura, the patient presents, the patient is calm, thoughtful, and displays ample patience. Black bile? Phlegm. Oh, I can't think of another word that goes with the sanguine and... and Phlegmatic. Phlegmatic? Yeah, phlegm. I'll go phlegm. It is indeed phlegm. So, See, phlegmatic describes someone who has those. Yeah, that really? that does not seem to fit at all. A phlegmatic to me it seems like somebody who's kind of sluggish, not like yeah, calm. Cold. Yeah. <laughs> so imagine an academic, you know, somebody who spends a lot of time on their own. Okay. Yes, I I am phlegmatic. <laughs> I learned a new vocabulary word. Uh, and finally, those who were dominated by black bile, of course, those melancholics, uh, were analytical, serious, and perhaps depressed. So to varying degrees, as we were discussing, these temperaments are still used in our language today. Humorism probably also influenced the development of Indian Ayurvedic medicine, in which three dosha, the vata dosha, the pitta dosha, and the kapha uh, dosha, roughly corresponding to wind, bile, and phlegm, must all be balanced. So, speaking of balancing, how are these humors balanced? Food. On a scale. You let the extra out. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so uh, some humorists later on believed that, uh, you know, eating certain foods could help balance the humors, and certain humors were associated with certain uh, temperatures and certain consistencies. So, so if you were suffering from a moist cold humor, so if you were phlegmatic, then you might cure that with something hot and dry. However, the most common way of balancing these humors, as Laura alluded to, was bleeding. Bloodletting! <laughs> if, if a person was believed to have an excess, excess of blood, bleeding them is the obvious course of action. Uh, heated cups were used to pull blood and bile to the surface. Oh, a practice, albeit without any reference to the four humors, that is still alive today. And emetics and purges were also used to expel surfeits of humor. I love seeing those the bleeding tools that they would put on the temples with all those little pins in them that they would push into mm. the forehead. Oh! <laughs> Yeah. So it's like your 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 own little uh, little personal um, Iron Maiden. Iron Those Maiden. things didn't really exist. Yeah. <laughs> what 
we'll have a show on medieval torture devices. It'll just be Gemini. <laughs> that temple it's... thing sounds so much worse than leeches. <laughs> ah. That's what they used when the leeches didn't work. Ah. So these treat- treatments certainly seem crude by modern standards. There's a very real yeah. risk associated with them, and since humorism has no basis in fact, there's essentially no possible benefit. But they can actually, when you think about it, still be seen as progressive because they admitted that psychological diseases could arise from physical rather than spiritual processes. So moving on to the Enlightenment, and you'll notice that a lot of what I'm talking about is fairly Eurocentric, and uh, that is, you know, due to some of the limitations uh, of time (laughs) that I had. Thank you for sticking to one globular... I'm only given a certain amount of time to talk here, so I'm trying to... I'm trying to to uh, talk about the entire history of mental illness treatment in uh, as short a time as I can. So, moving on to the Enlightenment, as I'm sure you can imagine, the treatments for mental illness in the 17th through 19th centuries were unpleasant and largely unhelpful. While mental illness was increasingly seen as a physical phenomenon rather than a symptom of some moral or spiritual failing, the mentally ill were still viewed essentially as violent animals. Restraint and forcible confinement were the norm, and rather than focusing on treatment, asylums and sanitaria simply focused on keeping the mentally ill segregated from the rest of society, well, caring for them as best as they could, arguably. Sympathy and a gentle hand was actually seen not only as unnecessary, but counterproductive as the madman was insensitive to pain, and harsh treatment was judged to help suppress his animal passions. Tough love. Yeah. The treatment of the mentally ill became, in some instances, a spectator sport. Mm -hmm. Throughout the 17th century, Bethlehem Royal Hospital, known also as Bedlam, permitted entry to anyone in exchange for a small donation. Visiting strangers could watch the inmates as a form of entertainment and moral instruction, the inmates serving as a cautionary tale against the dangers of immorality and vice. One such such visitor is reported to have said, quote, From so humbling a sight, we may learn to moderate our pride, and to keep those passions within bounds, which, if too much indulged, would drive reason from her seat and level us with the wretches of this unhappy mansion. It was in the 19th century that the term psychiatry was coined, and the various diagnostic terms began to appear that are still in use today. The 20th century saw the rise of several physical interventions for mental illness, the most famous of which are probably electroconvulsive therapy and the lobotomy. Those are the two, the last two that I'm going to touch on, I think. So first, electroconvulsive therapy, better known as electroshock therapy, is probably best known to those of us, uh, those of us who have seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. ECT aims to provide relief from psychiatric illnesses by electrically inducing seizures in the patient. So that's one of the reasons that it looks so violent. Despite the associations that people might have with Nurse Ratched, it's rather more helpful and less torturous than is typically portrayed in the media. Today, ECT is administered, when it's administered, under anesthetic and with a muscle relaxant to minimize any adverse effects of the convulsions. And it's also used with informed consent as an intervention for major depressive disorder, mania, and catatonia. Our friends over at the Reality Check podcast actually did a great segment on electroconvulsive therapy back in September, so I'll put a link in the show notes if you'd like to learn more. The lobotomy, uh, also known as the leucotomy, 
involves severing the connections between the prefrontal cortex and the rest of the brain. The prefrontal cortex is the anterior portion, so the, the front portion of the frontal lobes of the brain, and it's implicated in executive function, which means that it's involved in decision-making, planning, and moderating social behavior. By cutting or scraping away most of the connections between these portions of the brain, surgeons sought to sever the connection with pathological brain circuitry curing mental illnesses such as depression, mania, and schizophrenia. Portuguese neurologist Antonio Igas Moniz, uh, who developed the procedure, actually shared the 1949 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for the, quote, discovery of the therapeutic value of leucotomy in certain psychoses. <laughs> Moniz believed the brain would functionally adapt to such an injury, and he was largely incorrect. <laughs> no kidding. So opponents of the procedure called it crude and hazardous, noting that patients became apathetic, lethargic, and disoriented. One doctor who had supplied Moniz with patients for the procedure declared that they had suffered a degradation of personality and that the changes Moniz observed in his subjects, which he thought were improvements, and he thought that he'd successfully treated these patients and that they'd improved, this doctor noted that the changes were better attributed to shock and to brain trauma than to a successful intervention. <laughs> Proponents of the lobotomy noted that patients became much easier to care for, to which <laughs> philosopher Norbert Wiener said, let me remark in passing that killing them also makes their custodial care easier. In 1950, the Soviet Union banned the lobotomy on moral grounds, calling it contrary to the principles of humanity. And this is the Soviet Union we're talking about. And were they the first to ban it? They actually were, the first that I could find. Japan and Germany followed suit soon after, and in the 70s, several states banned it. And by the late 70s, the practice had become very rare. In recent years, there have been calls for the Nobel Committee to posthumously strip monies of the award, which they have not. The sister of playwright Tennessee Williams actually had, uh, was subjected to a lobotomy, as was uh, one, of the, uh, one of the siblings of uh, John F. Kennedy. Rose. Rose, Rose, Rose. Yeah, Rose, yeah, Rosemary uh, Kennedy. And actually, uh, Tennessee Williams' sister was also named Rose. And Wikipedia notes that Williams' play Suddenly Last Summer was highly critical of lobotomy, quote, because it was sometimes inflicted on homosexuals to render them morally sane. Yep. And that may be the second most horrifying thing that will be mentioned in this segment. <laughs> I just want to breeze through a, a couple of other tidbits that I ran across while doing the research here. Traditional Chinese philosophy recognizes actually five classical elements instead of the four that might be familiar to our listeners. But I was disappointed to learn that they weren't earth, fire, wind, water, and heart. <laughs> Instead, they're uh, earth, fire, metal, water, and wood. I found that interesting. Yeah. The term crazy comes from Middle English crazen, which means to crush or crack, while insane comes from the Latin insanus, which just means unhealthy. And finally, here's a horrifying one. Have any of you heard of drapetomania? No. No. According to American physician Samuel A. Cartwright, it was a mental illness common among black slaves that caused them to flee their masters and seek emancipation. Wow. Yeah. Many academics during the 19th century argued that mental disorders were rare among slaves, <laughs> but uh, became more common following emancipation. 
just one more horrifying example of racism masquerading as science. One other link we're going to put in the show notes is a link to Nellie Bly's 1887 expose called 10 Days in a Madhouse, uh, when she was put into, she got herself admitted into a madhouse to see what was going on inside Mm. from an inmate's perspective. And I recently came across a free copy of that on the web. So we'll put a a link to that. We've talked about how mental illness was treated through history, but we're also talking about stigma today. How mental illness was viewed by doctors, by physicians, by the public. Laura? Okay, well, as Jem mentioned, for much of history, the treatment of mental illness was not the best. And, And thus, we can imagine that how mental illness and the people living with it were probably also not treated in the best way. So as, again, as Jem mentioned, from as far back as we have any kind of recorded history, we, we see that a lot of the, the blame for mental illness was put on supernatural forces, usually demonic possessions or somebody incurring the wrath of God or gods or, or some kind of spirit like that. And it was usually believed that it was in fact something that the person had done to deserve that. So it was sort of their fault. And so then it was also seen that this person was of poor repute, poor character, and they should be ostracized because of that. In many societies, that stigma also extended to the family of the people living with this. So they would say, oh, well, this family member has a demonic possession. That must mean that this person's not good, so your family must not be good. It was also sometimes thought that mental illness was contagious or hereditary, which in some cases the predisposition towards it actually is, but it wasn't seen in that kind of way. Obviously, they didn't know the genetics of it at that point, but they thought that, well, if this person has it, then their families must have it, kind of like the chicken pox or something like that. So let's stay away from the whole family. And that's not even counting mass hysteria? Yeah, exactly. That That's a little bit different. This is just more so like, oh, you've got somebody in your family who's whatever. Well, then you all are at risk for that. You're tainted. We don't want you around. So the idea of mass hysteria is really terrifying. You know, all those uteruses wandering around. (laughs) Yes. Hey, you were laughing, but you just weren't laughing out loud. So the podcasters, (laughs) you know, couldn't hear it. Uh Uh-huh. So in any case... Because of this presumed negative impact and this person being seen as being tainted and that the whole family is affected, the common practice for a long time was to hide individuals that had mental illness, either within the family, so they'd basically be shuttered within the house and never let outside, or they would just simply be disowned and thrown out of town or just often left to wander town to town begging for food. And that was pretty common. And this, of course, perpetuated the belief that people who are mentally ill or who are dealing with these issues are useless because they're no good to a family, right? They only bring bad things upon them. Or, and that they're potentially dangerous because only vagrants are dangerous, right? It'll increase their desperation. It'll increase their desperation. And just thinking back to several thousand years ago, or not even that long ago, couple hundred communities were a lot more communal like it was very important to be part of the group and to be accepted and in some cultures it still is it's a little less so in the one in which we live but it is still important and so if you don't have a home and you don't have a family and you don't even have a town to call your own there must be something really wrong with you so it just 
this perpetuates, this whole cycle perpetuates that stigma. And this continued for, for many, many hundreds of years. Even, as far as I could tell, even during the time of the ancient Greeks, when it was starting to be postulated that mental illness wasn't simply due to spiritual factors, but to physical factors, it still wasn't acceptable to have these people in, in one's life. This became especially true in the Middle Ages, again, as Jem had mentioned, especially in, or at least for Christian countries in the Middle Ages, where the Christian religion was so strong in every part of life and law and practice. And so, it, again, it, re, it was really strong to re return to the belief that those who are mentally ill had angered God and should be punished for their sins. So, again, sort of like we were talking about that tough love and they don't they did something wrong. They don't deserve to be loved and to be cared for. And like Jem said, they often were targets in the witch hunts, you know, especially somebody who's maybe experiencing psychosis or they're hearing voices or something that's, you know, outside of normal behavior. Well, of course, they must be a witch, right? They must be mm -hmm. something like that. And even people who were seeking treatment, sort of pagan treatment or folk treatments, because that was all associated with witchcraft, it, they couldn't even seek any kind of treatment that they were oh, trying yeah. to yeah. get at mm -hmm. that point. So it was damned if you do, damned if you don't for, for individuals. And that was great for them. Really fantastic time, humans. So, way, way to go, people. <laughs> people, we're awesome, man. No. During the Renaissance and industrialization periods, um, the institutionalization of people really, really started. And like we were talking about, there were the madhouses and the asylums. And the original meaning of asylum was actually sanctuary, safety. It was yeah, supposed yeah. to be a place to go, a place of refuge. Asyl, asyl. Exactly. For any of us who have seen the Hunchback of Notre Dame, you know, that's, that's the idea there. And actually, during the time of the Middle Ages, there were some privately religious run madhouses that were more sympathetic to individuals and they would it was a strong emphasis on religion but it was a caring for and it was a humane type of thing and encouraging people to talk and and feeding them and clothing them and and just taking them in but in the 17th 18th centuries that really fell by the wayside and the idea was really just to remove people from society again they were seeing that it was moral failings that was causing these mental illnesses and the idea that they that individuals like Jen said had humanity left was was very fleeting at that time so that really played into the the terrible situations in the institutions because they were seen as animals they were seen that they just weren't even human anymore so they were treated as animals or probably in most cases worse than a lot of other animals were treated. Animals were worth money. Exactly. Animals were worth money, but these people were just, you know, burdens. they were burdens. Exactly. And it was the whole point was to remove these individuals from society. It was, there was no emphasis on the safety or care of these individuals. Or rehabilitation. Or rehabilitation. I mean, there was no thought that they could even be treated or that, you know, they could be, the poor behavior could be beaten out of them or something like that. So if you keep beating them and they don't get better, well, you must just need to beat them more, I guess, or they just can't be fixed. So they were really seen as a burden on society. And that's kind of the history of the stigma. It, it sort of got better, or it started to get better in the late 19th century and then early 20th century, as there was more of an emphasis on a humane approach and that trying to actually treat people like 
people might actually help them and provide them. There was a mental hygiene movement as well, which actually took all the focus off of actually treating the, the mental health issue, but it really focused on quality of life and life skills and rehabilitation and that. So while it didn't actually deal with say psychosis or something it did really encourage like physical hygiene and, and treating a person well which does go a long way for helping along this the fresh air and exercise movement it is it is that but at least it was you know feeding people and not shackling yeah. them to a wall and letting them move <laughs> and all of those kinds of things that's infinitely better yeah that up until the the beginning of the 20th century that's kind of where the stigma of mental illness has been surely it can't be as bad as all that now though we know it's not demons or humors or wizards. So Ashlyn, what's the stigma and normalization like today? Are we sure it's not wizards? Oh, I was I was just excited because she mentioned demons and wizards, and I'm like, that's a great metal band. <laughs> no, it actually is. Come yeah. on, like it's a, they're great. That's an actual band. Yeah, yeah. It's actually it's a it's Blind Guardian and some of the people from Blind Guardian and some of the people from Iced Earth got together. Fiddler on the Green. So You're just yeah. saying words now. Oh You're come on! I know together. what he's talking about. I just assume that whenever he strings together more than two fantasy-sounding words, it's probably a band. <laughs> <laughs> probably a metal band. Probably a metal yeah, band. Probably Swedish or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> They've got really long hair. <laughs> so I think it would be fair to say that most people believe that stigma affecting people with mental health struggles has improved in the last hundred years. Unfortunately, while public discourse about the subject has become more about supporting people and less about criminalizing them for the most part, the ingrained prejudices in the minds of most people and Canadians remains strong and difficult to navigate. So some common myths about people with mental illness include that they're more likely to be violent. And this, Mm -hmm. as Laura was talking about, goes back hundreds of years. They're more likely to be poor or less intelligent. The mentally ill are lazy or brought their problems on themselves. In reality, of course, mental illness can affect anyone of any social class or intelligence for many different reasons and some reasons that we still don't understand. And mentally ill people are far, far more likely to be the targets of violence rather than to perpetuate violence themselves. The idea that we see every time there's a school shooting or or a mass violence of any kind that we need to do background checks to keep guns out of the hands of mentally ill people is like this weird red herring because it's not generally mentally ill people who are committing these types of crimes. The only thing on that list that might be kind of true is that people with mental illness are often pushed into poverty by an inability to find work, not an inability to work. But a big part of the stigma experienced is in the realm of employment. A survey conducted, and it was in the United States, found that more than half of employers would be reluctant to hire someone who is mentally ill, and a quarter of employers would dismiss someone who had not disclosed a mental illness. So there's a catch twenty two for oh, you. Oh jeez. Yeah. yeah. And that like that's when I uh, I was a night manager at a Tim Hortons for a little bit when I was in school, and one of the one of the guys I worked with was schizophrenic, and like if that hadn't been disclosed because uh, there was medication that had to ha- that he had to take and like that. You know, so he, he disclosed that to me. But if if I hadn't known, I would have just thought, you know... He, just the way he is. That's just the way he is, you know? Yeah. Like, he's he was the greatest guy to work with. When he was there, it, like, made my shift so much better. Because he was a great worker and a super, like, funny, awesome dude, you know? Like, there was no reason for there to be any stigma. And it just makes me sad that he... That people have to kind of struggle to to deal with that sort of thing. Yep. 
a lot of people with mental illness or who struggle with these kinds of things, even if you can find a job, it's often in a position with a lot less responsibility, fewer duties, and a lot less pay than they're actually qualified for because of this stigma around, well, we can't hire you to do the job because you're depressed or you have an anxiety disorder or whatever. And a lot of the problems that come up too are with people sort of putting all mental illness under one umbrella, which we're kind of doing in this show because uh, we're talking in a, a broad overview sort of way. Yeah, can you imagine doing a show about the history and stigma associated with physical illnesses? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I apologize for the for the umbrella show. Oh, no. no. <laughs> we can do a whole series on mental illness. <laughs> we, we, just, yeah. we just did a, a one episode all about intelligence <laughs> in the animal kingdom, so... Yeah. All of our shows, sort of by necessity, are big umbrella topics that could have many other shows subcategorized. Mm-hmm. If you'd them. like to know more, see the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> so, naturally, the stigma and oppression faced by people with mental illness is an intersectional issue. A person who is white, cisgendered, heterosexual, middle class is going to have a lot fewer barriers to treatment and experience much less stigma than a person of color would, a trans person, or someone who also has a physical disability. Unfortunately, when you get those oppressions stacked together on top of one another, it becomes harder and harder and harder to get the kinds of treatment you need to find employment. All of these things become more and more difficult the more you stack the deck against a person. One horrible side effect of mental health stigma is that doctors tend to be even more prejudiced against people with mental illness than the general public. This can impact the availability of healthcare in general, And I've seen anecdotes and also read studies where any issue that a person with mental illness who has disclosed such comes up with is automatically attributed to their mental illness and not to whatever the issue actually is. In addition to impacting access to general health care, it can impact access to mental health care as well when doctors think that you're making it up. And there's the sort of the mind-body dichotomy where, you know, we've gotten away from this idea that the mind is a totally separate thing from the body. Most doctors hopefully aren't Cartesian dualists. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly. But apparently this makes it more difficult for doctors to take the kinds of lessons that are given to the general public. Like you see those memes going around where it says depression is a real disease, just like diabetes or high blood pressure. And so we should treat it as such. And I was reading a study today that showed that that those kinds of messages are actually less effective on people who work in healthcare, which I thought was very strange. And so this study was proposing that we need to come up with new techniques to teach doctors more sensitivity. And they propose things like showing them brain scans to show that this really is a biological thing that's going on. I wonder why that is. Yeah, I, I think so maybe weird. Uh, maybe it's because doctors feel like they're sort of experts in physical systems, and because that falls outside of their purview, they're less likely to take it seriously. Brains are scary. <laughs> the brains are scary. And it's it's something that's difficult to treat, too, right? You can't put a cast on your brain and it'll be better in six to eight weeks. That is exactly the analogy I was just going to say. <laughs> Things that we can do to combat stigma in the present day are really important. 
Do you guys have any suggestions of things that people could try at home? <laughs> uh, it seems like like disclosing your own, like talking about your yep. own struggles with mental illness would be helpful. Hey, great, because normalizing mental illness is part of my set of segments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like pretty much any other category of oppressed people, the more people know someone with a mental illness that they are, you know, friends with or a family member, the less the stereotypes and the ridiculous caricatures have to hold on to. Yeah. So, you know, if you know a gay person, you're less likely to think they're evil. <laughs> if you know someone <laughs> with depression, you're less likely to think all of the horrible things that go along with that. Yeah, I've heard that called the gay friend effect. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the easiest things that you can do and that you should encourage other people in your life to do is to stop using ableist language. Thank you. Uh, most people that I know don't use the word retarded anymore, but they'll say crazy or psycho or lunatic without a second thought. This is something that I've been working on, and it's just like when you're trying to cut other words out of your vocabulary that you've realized are problematic. It takes a while, and it mm -hmm. slips out sometimes, and that's okay. Just continue on and keep trying to keep it in the front of your mind that saying something is crazy because it's absurd is just like saying something is retarded. That's that, not okay. That's my go-to replacement. Yeah. I, I used to say, you know, I've probably said it on this podcast a lot, that's crazy in the in the sense that, like, that's that's hard to believe. And that's absurd is uh, is my go-to replacement. Yeah. yeah, I use ridiculous a lot. Yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> what I say a lot. I've been trying not to use the words mental illness in this podcast. I've been trying to say mental health. I know it slipped out there a little bit, but... We've got to worry about our mental health, not about those with mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, I don't remember exactly how Jay Smooth put it, and I'm not nearly so eloquent as he is, but talking about uh, discussions of race, you know, racist language can slip out sometimes, and when that happens, it doesn't mean you're a bad person, but it means it's something that you can work on, and it's not about categorizing people as bad for using ableist language it's mm -hmm. about teaching them to to do better mm -hmm. you know we all ha i think he uses the the analogy it's like you know you got something in your teeth <laughs> uh, when somebody points points out that you've used ableist language or racist language they're not saying you're a bad person they're saying hey i'm trying to help you you've got you've got a little racism in your teeth <laughs> you know let's let's deal with that so yeah it's it's a small thing but it's something that literally every person can do so i can attest to all of that we may have some good treatments out there today that are focused on getting people healthy, but it's still a really hard slog to get there, to get there through the public opinion, and to get there through the medical profession as well. So on to current treatments. Current treatments in developed countries, I'm mostly going to speak about the Canadian perspective. The current treatment is a lot more effective and humane than it was even 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. As we learn more about mental illness and the way that brains work, we refine treatment and make it painless and less traumatic to the person both living with mental illness and their support network. Maybe less painful, not painless in all cases. <laughs> That's true. We try to make it as less painful as possible. Yeah. Because we do have to consider both the person living with the mental health issue as well as their support network because that is so draining on a family. The same is with a long-term illness of a physical as opposed to a mental issue. So the common current treatments include talk therapy, also known as psychotherapy, behavior modification therapy, 
and drugs. We still do use uh, electroconvulsive therapy, as Jem was talking about earlier. And as he said, it's much less traumatic. So we try to do the less painful option. Mm-hmm. And it's used in the most narrow of circumstances and to, to reduce all of discomfort. Other credible therapies that are used today can include the use of surgery or art or hypnosis. So pretty much you can run the gamut from non-invasive to whatever you need to get done. Uh, we're not talking lobotomies anymore, but there are implants that you can get. There's a lot of quackery out there. <laughs> yeah. That's and, with the whole health issues. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot more even in mental health than you'll find in... There's really only a couple of things you can do for a broken arm, but yeah. there's a lot of things you can do for depression, for the, the, the desperate more, people. The more physical something is, you know, you don't have a lot of quackery to deal with, like, missing limbs, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, but you have more to deal with headaches, and you have more to deal with. Yeah, you know, the but homeopathy has a cure for everything. Yeah, just d- dilute some uh, a portion of somebody's arm uh, <laughs> to thirty C. So from all these that aren't quackery, talk therapy is still the most common. So it's either in an individual session, group, or family session, depending on the circumstances. It's also the general first step in most he- mental health situations. You have to understand the problem before you can start to treat it. So you have to get the person talking, saying, this is how I feel, this is what I feel I need, with a qualified professional. Talking with friends is great, having a support system is great, but there comes a point where you have to go, I need a step above this. Yeah. So drug therapy includes antidepressants, such as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, so SSRIs, and also antipsychotics. And those traditionally block receptors to the brain's dopamine pathways, but modern ones also inhibit serotonin. That's something I didn't know. But the new ones do both. Hmm. Block dopamine receptors, yeah. eh? That's what clopamine did originally, was to block dopamine. That sounds like it would be really tough to live with. Yes. Well, that's why a lot of people talk about how when they're on antidepressants like that, it keeps you from hitting the low lows, but it also keeps you from yeah. hitting the highs. It really just yeah. evens everything out. That was my major issue, was the old style of antipsychotics and antidepressants, was I didn't want to live in a fog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I had that for years, saying, I don't want this because it's going to do X to my body, which is a stigma that I had even as somebody living with a mental illness. We're going to talk about some barriers to treatment now. And we're going to get a little bit personal. These treatments are all well and good. How do you get to them? In Canada, it should be as easy as talking to your GP and relying on our healthcare system to help you along the way. But in my personal experience, it's been a bit of a tougher road. We have two unofficial tiers of mental health services available in Canada. I hate to say it, but it's true. We have these two tiers, and I'm going to talk about each of them. There's the route for people who can't afford to pay top dollar and the route for people who are able to go hey, let's throw some money at this problem and get some treatment. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to get personal here, as I said, both in the hopes to aid in the normalization of mental health issues and to show that getting help is not as easy as it could be. There are still some major barriers that we need to break down. I have joked that I'm the dumb one here on Life, the Universe, and everything else. And, well, that may be true. (laughs) (laughs) No. Yes. I'm also a fairly well-educated, with a college diploma but no university degree, cis woman, who knows the system, and who has a very understanding boss and a heck of a corporate benefits plan. So in Ashlyn's uh, intersectionality that she talked about there, I hit all the, all the check marks for being one to get good treatment. Mm-hmm. I wanted to reiterate that because I spend a lot of time during my walk through Canada's mental health system thinking about how worse it could be for someone without the privileges that I enjoy. So I live with persistent depression, 
anxiety, and borderline personality disorder. I've been depressed and anxious for as long as I can remember, all the way back to junior kindergarten. I remember being four years old and signing my name with a little letter L as opposed to a big because I wasn't as important as the other kids. That's the first... I know, it sounds so sad, but that's how baby Lauren thought about thought about herself. This isn't a new thing. I've had talk therapy sessions with various therapists and analysts intermittently from the time I was 14 until I was in my early 30s. And now I'm in my mid-30s and it's still continuing. I was adamant up until a few years ago, as I mentioned before, that I wasn't going to medicate my problems away, that drugs would cloud my judgment, turn me into a zombie, and they make fish do dumb things from drug-contaminated wastewater flushed into the waterways. <laughs> I was very concerned about the fish. <laughs> the fish! I was concerned. Oh, think about the fish! I was concerned how, how my mental health treatments, if, it, if they were going to be medical, that they would affect the environment. And that's a, yeah, that's a valid concern. Yeah. So during a round of family therapy, I began to see some things differently. That I could benefit from something besides talk therapy. And the therapist asked if I would be like to formally evaluated by the psychiatrist on staff. For that, I needed a referral from my doctor. I don't have a GP. I'm one of the many Canadians who relies on the walk-in clinics and public health for medical care. I had seen one doctor a few times, but I was uncomfortable with his practice, so I was looking for another doctor at the time. But I went to him for the note anyway, simply because... I could. I got the referral note after waiting six hours in his office, and I also got a short lecture about the evils of psychiatry from him. Oh, wow. That's yep. helpful. That's, <laughs> that's was, great. Was your doctor Tom Cruise? <laughs> no, he was not glib. <laughs> I then waited for three months to see the psychiatrist because we were going through a low copay, like a low pay therapy group. So, and then we had a two hour session set up through my therapist. So after three months, I had a two-hour session with a psychiatrist. So two months after seeing me, I received the diagnosis and treatment recommendation through my therapist, as well as a warning against the doctor who gave me the referral. Apparently they had some feud, (laughs) personal feud. Oh, Oh, Winnipeg Health. (laughs) Well, but hey, at least you still got that referral. (laughs) But the the warning was he was not one, that he was an okay doctor, but he was not one to follow up on mental health issues saying how's the treatment going how is the medication going right so i was better off finding someone else to prescribe the medication so here i am somebody suffering with persistent depression and anxiety of dealing with all of this at once and my executive function on the issue just went oh god i just want to hide in a corner (laughs) so the psychiatrist didn't do the prescribing no yeah so the way the practice worked um was that there was uh, like some supervising counselors and then the people that we saw were all like student counselors and mm. the reason it was so cheap was because it was a sliding scale thing through united way right. where the students could get their practicum hours and we could get some counseling and they had one psychiatrist on for the entire practice right which is why you only get one two-hour session with him and then that's it so he was yeah. not he was not able to he, prescribe because he, he couldn't, couldn't follow, follow up with yeah. you he was yeah. a consulting yeah. psychiatrist right. that makes sense yeah it's still a good a good option for people yeah. who need a oh, lower health care. It's a great program, yeah. 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 We're here five months from me telling a therapist that I needed treatment. And I have a piece of paper saying I have this and that I need this. Five months. And I've got a piece of paper. 
I still haven't received any medical treatment for my depression, anxiety, and borderline. I called other agencies in that five months, so keeping in mind of the anxiety that I talked about earlier. So one of my anxiety triggers is picking up a phone and talking to somebody about myself. Another one is broadcasting my mental health issues on a podcast. So <laughs> I got bad news for you, Lauren. Yeah, so this is going out to the world. But in, this, in the sake of normalization, I'm here to do it for you. I was told when I called these other agencies that I needed to go on a wait list for the services. And that was fine. But I also had to be on another wait list first to get on the official wait list. The waiting list for the waiting list. I had, there was a waiting list for the waiting list for the mental health services from the province of Manitoba. That sounds ridiculous, but about right. Yeah, and that was after they had opened the mental health clinics. So that would be six months to a year for being on these two wait lists from going where I was. So I tried walk-in doctors, one of whom accused me of drug fishing and tried to take my note from my psychiatrist away from me. Oh. And I tried a doctor who was accepting new patients, and he did prescribe me the medication I needed on a one-month-at-a-time basis. So he would give me a one-month script. And he also insisted that I try exercise, gave me a lecture that mental health was all in my head. And he didn't believe me when I said, I go to the gym, I walk to work, I do all these things. And he that was if you jog 12 miles a week, there'll be nothing wrong with you. Yeah. We called him Dr. Jog for the longest time. Yeah. I, I don't know what his name was, but he was Dr. Jog. <laughs> but he kept insisting that I needed a pap smear. To keep for him to keep prescribing for an SSRI. What? He needed to do a full physical workup, including what? a pap smear, for him to prescribe me mental health medication for more than a month at a time. He wanted to make sure her uterus wasn't watering. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> that scares me. It creeps me out a little bit. I mean, like, yeah. legitimately with certain medications, you do have to do other kinds of tests. Yeah. I can't imagine that this is one of them. No. Like... I get my plumbing checked out through <laughs> places that... Through places like Nine Circles that are who deal with that. sexual health. <laughs> but the guy I go to for my brain meds shouldn't be looking for my wandering uteri. More than one? Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I do! That <laughs> <laughs> does happen occasionally. I finally did my research and I found a clinic that had their commitment to mental health written into their website. Right. So that was, it was a sigh of relief. I still dread having to go every six months to get my prescription though, thinking that this is the time that they're gonna refuse and turn me away and say, we don't want to prescribe for you anymore. You've been on this for, for so long. Maybe it's time to buck up. So that's what my anxiety does to me. And Ashlyn can, can tell you how much of a bundle of nerves I turn into when it's time to go get my script again. That's so hard to to believe, like, because I like I take medication every day for acid reflux, and if I had to worry about somebody, you know, just going to if I'm going to get a refill on my prescription, and I had to worry about somebody saying, no, I, you know, try exercise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, but I, but this helps me. This is working. Let's yeah. keep doing this. But that's another problem too, is when sometimes when people describe the issues that they have navigating the system, they get responses like that. Like, that's really hard to believe. Are you sure that you really tried to get this medication? Oh, yeah. I, yeah, and <laughs> no, I'm, no. I'm not saying that, it, like, it's, uh, I'm not saying it's hard to believe. No, it's, I, it's horrible <laughs> that you have to deal with that because for a physical ailment, don't. Yeah, I know what you meant, but people who have things like anxiety can hear phrases like that and take them right. really the wrong way. Yeah. I didn't because I know Jim, but... <laughs> <laughs> and all this has happened within the last two years. This has been... When did we start this journey? 2013? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 
So this is not going back several years. This is mm-hmm. things that I've been living with in my day-to-day life right now. I know I'm going to be on these meds for the rest of my life. That's the nature of my particular brand of depression. I'm not ever not going to be depressed. I can mitigate it, mm-hmm. but I'm always going to need some help. That's what persistent depression is. So these these drugs that I'm on, they don't cloud my judgment too badly. Maybe Ashlyn will just <laughs> laughing in the corner. And I'm still, well, I think I'm still the same person I was before I started taking them. I just have less anxiety and slightly less depression. So I don't lie awake at night thinking of all the bad things that can happen. I don't have what I call the anxiety hamsters flitting in my brain all night. Mm-hmm. She's smiling. She's nodding. <laughs> she gets some sleep now. Yeah. Yay, sleep, which is also very important for make everything else work better. Yes. <laughs> so my experience on the other side of the mental health tiered system was much easier. I did a quick Google search for borderline personality disorder treatment because they didn't treat this through the, the clinics I was seeing. And I found a psychiatric nurse who offered the dialectical behavioral therapy and had a practice near my office. So for a much steeper price than free, <laughs> I am able to get the services I need on a quicker time frame. She was able to see me the same week that I called. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's very expensive in relation to the other treatment, mm-hmm. but it's also more focused and something that I and I need to do a lot of work on it at home Mm -hmm. there were many times that I felt like giving up but I do have a very good support system who helped me through the rough parts and as I said I can't imagine navigating the system without the privileges and advantages that I possess my tale includes barriers such as personal apathy the issues with the mental illnesses themselves financial issues long wait times and stigma and disbelief from health providers so what are some other barriers that you think people can face. Another thing that that we have that somebody with less income would have a harder time with is the clinic that we eventually found that will prescribe for you is right across the city. We have the ability to drive there and it's not that big a deal. But if you had to get a cab or take a bus across the city, it'd be like three buses and a super annoying pain in the ass every time we had to go. Yeah. yeah, and if you if and you, half a day. If yeah. you're a single parent with kids, you're just never going to be able to make that trip. It is two buses and an hour and a half ride from my office because I've had to take the bus because I ride the bus to work. So those are things that a lot of people will just give up if they have to go across the city to access services. Or if you have if you have a job that it's open the same hours as the place and won't give you time off. Mm-hmm. Right, you don't get sick time or, or medical leave or anything like yeah. that. So with the geographical issues, I can't imagine anybody who had to come in for treatment, say from up north in Manitoba, Yeah, if they have to come in to the city because there's not a lot of psychoanalytical treatment outside of the city of Winnipeg within Manitoba. Yeah. And there are also support system barriers. I'm very lucky to have a supportive boss, as I said, and a supportive workplace. Plus also my partners, Ashlyn and Dave, make it very easy to get treatment. They bend over backwards to help me. So what if your partners or parents or friends and colleagues or if your religion or your society, they aren't open to helping you? Mm-hmm. So facing a health crisis can already be daunting and having to do it alone can be deadly. Finding the right treatment and the right provider is also a huge challenge. Uh, meds need to be adjusted. You may not always mesh with the first therapist or doctor that you meet with. Or the 10th. So if you only have, like say in the States, you only have one on your network and you don't like them, what are you going to do? Pay out of pocket for everything? That's just really not possible with the rates that are charged. No. Like, yeah. Nobody can reasonably afford that. 
And rates in the states are often higher than in Canada because, at least in a system that's somewhat single-payer, that uh, you, you have a lot more negotiating power. Yeah. Another big barrier is work-life balance. For the large segment of the population who are unemployed, underemployed, or working con- contract or part-time work, they may not have access to benefits programs such as employee assistance or health spending. One major example of this came from a contract worker at Bell Media, and we're going to link to her story in the show notes. So Bell Media is currently running their Let's Talk campaign, which is great. Let's talk about mental illness. Let's talk about breaking down the barriers and the stigmas. Mm -hmm. When a huge corporation hires contractors and then works them to the bone 60 hours a week, doesn't offer them access to the benefits program, it creates a huge problem. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's talk about mental health, but we're not going to actually do anything for our employees who need access to actual support systems. Because we work them 60 hours a week at minimum wage. Yeah. They can't afford to take the time or use the money to find treatment, especially if it costs them their job. These are all barriers that we need to work on. And let's, you know, start solving them. Come on, (laughs) Belle. It's also important just to treat people that are dealing with mental health issues and struggles like people. You know, continue to be friends with your friends that have mental issues. Sometimes people with mental illness have to cancel plans on you or they have inconvenient feelings and it's important just to support them and not be an asshole. So in conclusion, How's your mental health? So I think that's everything that we have to talk about today. Thanks for listening, everybody. And if you uh, like today's episode, feel free to give us a glowing review on iTunes or Stitcher. Also, you can send us feedback by sending us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Facebook. And thanks for joining me tonight, folks. Thanks for, you know, sharing uh, your story tonight, Lauren, and leading us through this uh, this journey into talking about mental health. Excellent. Thanks for letting me. Yeah, and uh, if you hated the episode and want to tell us how we screwed it up, don't leave us a review. Just send us that email. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, we're always happy to take criticisms and address them the next time we all sit down to chat. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about next time? Oh, 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 that's me. Uh, next time we're going to be talking about parapsychology. Nice. Awesome. We'll see you then. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. sings the chicken dance. I think that's what... Yeah. <laughs> 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 Try that again. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, Lauren. She's bitchy. Maybe they just needed a hole in their head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I was hoping we could get through we could get through the segment without somebody saying, I need a trepanation like I need, the, need a hole in the head. <laughs> Too late now. Yeah. Uh, okay. Blood? Blood. Black bile? Blah. Brendan loves... Christian movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>